Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Melanin Margin, the weekly chat show where conversations about race are never off the table. We're your hosts, Quaviandre Williams. And Daquan Wilson. So let's get into this week's conversation. What's on the table this week? For as long as we could remember, gender has been black and white, boy and girl, and nothing in between. However, as we gain more life experience, we find that these restrictive ideals are not as clear cut as they may seem. So Andre, I wanted to ask you, what was your first experience with exploring your gender? So for me, one of the first unconscious experiences with exploring gender is um, one I think that many people can relate to, which is Halloween. Um, it's the one day of the year where you can dress up in elaborate clothing without anyone thinking that you're weird or strange. Of course, there were still limitations. Like I could never dress up as a feminine presenting fictional character growing up, but it was the one day of the year where I could toe the line a little bit. However, one of my first conscious experiences exploring gender was during You Guessed It Theater. I know, I know, big shocker, big shocker, right? Groundbreaking, <laughs> never been seen before. <laughs> but I think that one of the main reasons that theater is so integral to many LGBTQIA persons' lives is because it's one of the few places in the world where you were encouraged to be unique, you know? And during freshman year, I was playing a role in a musical that required me to wear makeup. Since no one could do it for me, I came to my mom, who was a beautician, and asked her to teach me how to do it myself. She showed me once, and after one stumble, I picked up the basics fairly quickly. I enjoyed it so much that I asked her if I could wear it to school, and she said, absolutely the fuck not. So I asked her if I could just wear it at home, and she said no to that, too. Then I decided that um, if I couldn't wear it, I would just practice my makeup skills with my little sister. And I'll never forget this memory. I'd just done my sister's makeup, concealer, foundation, contour, highlights. I mean, the whole shebang, Daquan. I went to show my mom the look and she burst out laughing, saying that I made my sister look like she was dead. And I swiftly packed up my mom's kit, washed off my sister's face and never touched makeup again. And as an adult, you know, I get why she did it. It was a different time and she still hadn't fully wrapped her head around me being gay at the time. Um, but it doesn't change the hurt though. And it doesn't change the fact that growing up, every time I thought about trying makeup, that memory was the first thing that came up. And even though it happened so long ago, as an adult, I don't have the same interest I had in makeup back then. I wonder how things, you know, would have turned out had she encouraged me instead. I mean, I still don't think it would have been my passion, but maybe it could have been like, you know, a lucrative side hustle, you know, but who knows? But what about you, Daquan? For me, it really started unconsciously at a young age. Like I had that stereotypical experience of being that little kid that used to, you know, put on his their mom's wigs and dress around in heels and dance around the house. Mary J. Blige's Just Fine was my jam. I would, <laughs> I would be going in with an eight count and everything. You couldn't fuck <laughs> nothing. 
And at the time, it wasn't really seen as nothing because it was just a kid having fun. But as I got older, it kind of started getting frowned upon and not something to be done because it there came that uh, prejudice against hom- like being gay or any type of gender variation other than being a cishet man. And I really stopped exploring my gender and it wasn't until college that I actively and consciously started doing things to kind of breach the mold a little bit. It started out small, like I would paint my nails and I just had fun doing it because it was something where I could literally just spend time with myself, paint, take the time to paint the nails and it was therapeutic. Um, and then of course it started moving on to wearing press on sometimes. And then when my parents saw it, of course it was like, why, why are you doing that? Like, what, why do you need this? Why waste your money mm. on this? And it kind of just like made me stay in the background a little bit with how I did it. I still painted my nails. That was still something I was going to do, but maybe not as much when I'm at home or maybe like a more neutral color. Um, but then my junior year of college, like right as the pandemic was starting, that's when I started to get into makeup. And that's when it finally just like clicked. Everything Mm -hmm. really clicked for me about how I was feeling gender wise. Like I've always had some type of feeling that it was not enough. Uh, I was like, okay, I'm gay. I'm like a gay feminine man. Like that's it. But there was still something that I didn't quite know yet. Um, But doing makeup and kind of exploring my gender that way really helped me push towards that language of non-binary, which I think is also a question, a great question to ask. So Andre, how did you come into the language of non-binary? I came into the language of being non-binary fairly recently, like within the past um, two years or so, I want to say. When I left home and stepped into the world as an adult, I was finally able to look at what I wanted from my life without the pressure of my parents or family weighing on me. I was able to explore my identity, my sexuality, and unpack many of the preconceived notions about what both of these things meant. The idea of in-betweens never really factored in before. Like you, Daquan, I identified as a gay Black man for the longest time because I thought that these were the only boxes that existed and anything else was, as many toxic people told me, quote unquote, too complicated. But when I was able to look at myself, really, really look at myself, I've always known my identity was not anywhere near as simple as everyone was telling me it was. Like, I knew I liked men, but I also knew that I didn't care what genitals they had. I also knew that there were some cis women that I was attracted to, but only ones who possessed a certain level of masculinity. And then there was the fact that I was attracted to masculine and feminine people who didn't identify with either gender. And then there was my identity. Like I knew that I was okay with the genitals that I have, but also I knew that I didn't really feel like a man. I thought for a long time that I may have been a trans woman, but I didn't identify with being called a woman, a wife, or a girlfriend, but being called a man or a husband or a boyfriend wasn't giving what it needed to give. So I did the whole, you know, Googling thing, and I came to the conclusion that I was actually and am actually a pansexual 
non-binary person who uses she, her pronouns. And once I knew this, it was so liberating, but it also helped me understand something else too. Like terminology isn't really for everyone else. I mean, it can be a useful descriptor, you know, if someone is open to receiving it, but it's really there to help some of us identify who we are. You know, knowledge empowers you. And when I had the word to describe the typhoon of what I thought were internal contradictions, everything clicked. The wave settled and it brought me a different level of clarity that I've never had before in my life. And now that I have it, it's helped me grow as a person by breaking down those societal norms that have been so ingrained in me since I was a child because I opened my mind, I could think more freely and that helped me grasp the concept of you know intersectionality in a deeper, more empathetic way. But what about you, Daquan, when did you know? I think for me, it kind of started in college, just like everything, you know, growing up, I didn't know anybody who identified as non-binary and it wasn't really something that was spoken of. The most I knew was like, either you're a man or you're a woman or sometimes there's trans people, but I also didn't know a lot about that because of course I didn't have any trans people that I knew personally in my life or knew of at the time. Um, so it wasn't until college when I remember orientation, we would go around and say pronouns and even that was something very new to me because in high school nobody was like oh my name is so and so and i go by these pronouns like nobody was doing that yeah and so that was a new experience for me that really had to start the process of kind of unpacking gender and being introduced to people who don't just go by he him pronouns and don't just go by she her but they them he they and everything else uh and so like I said before, it was as I was exploring my gender with makeup that I kind of started to get this idea of being non-binary because I remember actually meeting people who were non-binary and kind of talking to them and how they experienced their gender. And it really struck a light bulb moment for me of like, oh, like I've been going through similar things or I've had mm -hmm. similar thoughts. And so you know, I started exploring with pronouns. I started move from using he, him to he, they, and just like really trying to think about what it is, what is going on in my gender identity, because I didn't have the language for it a lot of the times. And then I really resonated with just being queer and non-binary and being uh, somewhat gender fluid. And yeah, that aspect of like, not having to fit in one box or the other was the biggest liberatory feeling ever because it was like all my life i felt like i had to be this type of person if i wasn't a man then i was i wanted to be a woman but i didn't want to be a woman and so mm -hmm. it was something that i could not grasp but having the language and feeling liberated to step out of the gender binary was uh something that just like blew my mind honestly it was like wow like i like how this feels and started introducing my pronouns to other people and hearing them use those pronouns for me was also very uh validating and just affirming and so it started something in me where i was like wow like i'm finally feeling 
what I wanted to felt this entire time. Absolutely. And I think, you know, you know, those who have had to come out because of their sexuality know how difficult approaching that conversation can be. And when you add gender to the mix, that can open up the opportunity for a whole new form of prejudice. You know, and with that being said, Daquan, what was your experience in coming out as non-binary to your friends, family, or coworkers? Or have you even come out at all? Yes, no, sometimes, <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> um, I've definitely breached the topic with a lot of different people and it's been a mixed bag of things. You know, sometimes it's been like, okay, cool. Like, what are your pronouns? How do you want to be referred to X, Y, and Z? And it's just like, go smoothly. Or, you know, sometimes there's been a lot of like, I don't really get it or I, I'm not understanding. I just need time. And like, you know, I give certain people grace that I care about because I care about them, but yeah. I still want and still need that respect. That respect is my boundary. If I'm not getting respected, then like this cannot be happening. <laughs> um, yeah. So it was really a mixed bag. And even now it's something that, you know, I feel like I don't really come out anymore because I don't like the language of coming out. It's something where it's like, frankly exhausting and it's more of letting certain people in so even at work like i'm not out to every single person i'm not you know having my pronouns in my uh, my little email signature and like telling people that i'm non-binary because frankly like if i'm emailing you one time i don't really need you to yeah, know no, that I'm stuff like it's it's not really that important, but like, for example, my team members who I talk to on almost a daily basis, they know my pronouns because we interact a lot more. And so I feel like for them, they're allowed to be in that kind or have that knowledge of me because after a certain amount of time, I was like, okay, like I feel comfortable enough in this space and we work closely enough that I feel like I can invite you into this part of my life, but I'll pass it back over to you. Um, I have come out to my family, uh, coworkers and friends. And just like you said, it's been a mixed bag of responses. Um, telling my sister was incredibly easy and she just adjusted no problem. My mom struggled a bit, but you know, she accepts me and tries her best to respect my pronouns. Coming out to my coworkers has been an experience. Um, <laughs> I dealt with a lot of bullshit from many of them in the first few months of being out. Had to have a lot of meetings, but back then it was harder because I was a librarian substitute. So I was dealing with coworkers from multiple library branches with vastly different personalities and beliefs. Surprisingly though, and I don't know if you run into this before, but I found that the people who I expected to have the most trouble with my pronouns have been incredibly respectful. And the people who I thought that this would be like a cakewalk for were the ones I had the most trouble with. And aside from my family, this has been pretty consistent across the board. I mean, there was this guy who I'd considered my best friend for nearly five years, who I've talked about on the podcast before, who was fully accepting of me being gay. However, when I came out as non-binary and had the pronoun change, he became an entirely different person. I mean, I won't get into that again, but basically I had no choice but to end the relationship the friendship and severed ties entirely because he refused to respect me. And 
you know, one of the hardest parts about being in the LGBTQI community is coming out. And I can't remember where I heard this from, and I think you were touching on this a little bit, but someone said that coming out isn't really what many people think it is. Like I'm paraphrasing, but the gist of what they said was coming out is not so much an announcement for everyone to know who you are so much as it's a way for us to take an inventory of who we can allow in our lives moving forward. And I wholeheartedly agree. Had I not come out of the closet as non-binary, I would have never known that my ex-best friend was never really my best friend. I would have never been able to see how throughout our friendship that he found ways to avoid taking responsibility and accountability for his actions and apologizing for when he hurt my feelings. You know, coming out helped me recognize who were the real friends and family in my life. And even though I lost a few people in coming out, I don't regret it one bit because I no longer have to edit who I am when I'm around the people that I love or work with. But my experience is not the same as others. And I also recognize what a great privilege it is that my pronouns are respected by my immediate family, friends, and coworkers without fear of certain repercussions, you know, like loss of support, um, being put out, or being fired. I mean, coming out was helpful to me, but not everyone feels safe enough to do that, and that's very valid. Um, if someone chooses to remain in the closet for the rest of their lives, that's their fucking business. You have to do what's best and safest for you. But like, Daquan, I want to ask you, did you run into any kind of negative experiences coming out? I think in general, the negative experiences has been kind of just like family needing time. And oh, I think okay. that, uh, you know, it can be an adjustment for people. Uh, yeah. I know for me, like, it took me a long time to understand who I was. So <laughs> I can only imagine how much time it will take for, you know, like my family who's been with me since I was born, literally, to understand uh, coming out and all of, the, all of yeah. the things that come with it. But I've been, you know, lucky enough to have an experience that's been generally positive. I've never really had anybody trying to be directly disrespectful to me or hurtful mm. or hateful or anything like that, which I consider a huge blessing because like you said, there it's a mix, it can be a mixed bag and my mixed bag has just leaned more positive, but some people's can lean very negative and very harmful. Yeah. What about um any affirming experiences with coming out? Any good ones, like really, really particularly good ones? I think in general, the most affirming parts have been like when coming out just like goes smoothly, where it's like, <laughs> okay, cool. And we can like move on because like I said before, it's exhausting and I hate for it. You know, like you said, I don't want it to be this big announcement where it's like everything's changing and this is this huge deal. Like, no, it's my life. Like I deal with it being non-binary every day. Like it's not this huge thing for me. And I appreciate it when I invite people into this part of my life that they also don't make it this huge thing. And I think, even just like senior year of just like being an RA and like having RA meetings and people using they them pronouns to refer to me, that was like, wow. Like that felt very affirming. And it's just the small things of just being able to use they them pronouns or even using more gender neutral language. Like I love when people, you know, 
move towards gender neutral language because we don't have to say boys and girls all exactly the time or yeah ladies and gentlemen because it's like there's a lot of people so seeing that shift and like seeing just how smooth everything goes has been the most affirming because like i said before i don't want some big deal like oh give me a hug and like all that yeah no, i'm not with that it's shit. not all like, that yeah <laughs> I, i'm telling you and you keep it pushing that's the best thing you can do with me yeah i have to agree wholeheartedly like some of the most affirming experiences coming out are sadly some really basic level shit. it's just people respecting the pronouns <laughs> like you know, even if they don't personally connect to my experience. And Daquan and I have talked about this in private before, but so many people have this obsession with trying to, quote, understand why someone is the way they are. But what we found is that this whole, I'm just trying to understand argument is actually just a guise for them to seek justification for your identity. See, understanding something requires empathy and self-reflection. For example, I don't personally identify with the pronouns they, them. However, when I reflect on my pronouns, I'm able to see that when people knowingly use the wrong ones, it makes me feel bad. This helps me understand why I should respect Daquan's usage of they, them pronouns. However, this is not what many people do. I've had several people, even in the LGBTQIA community, ask me why I use she, her pronouns rather than they, them pronouns as a non-binary person. Now, on the surface, this question seems harmless, but it's not about what you say. It's about how you say it. And whenever I've answered simply with, and I'm sure you've said the same thing too, Daquan, because these pronouns are what feels right to me. And they go on to try to tell me something like, well, you can't be non-binary. Well, you, you, you must be gender fluid or something. You just must be a trans woman to have these pronouns and so on and so forth. As if the fuck I haven't already done this reflection and research myself. But I just, you know, let me, wait, let me make one thing clear. My identity and sexuality are not up for debate. I don't care if you, you know, if who I am doesn't make sense to you. I don't care if you're confused and I don't owe you an explanation or a justification. All I expect is the same respect I give to you. If you're that curious to know more and someone chooses not to explain, baby, Google is free 99. But in the words of TikToker Michaela Jennings, the girls that get it, get it. The girls that don't, don't. And if you don't get it, then you're obviously not that girl. <laughs> Period. And I also have to say, like, it's so important to just get it because respect and empathy is not a hard thing to do. Like you said, it's just reflecting on your own experience should be enough for you to understand why you should re respect and have empathy for other people. For example, I don't know why somebody named Richard would want to be called Dick. <laughs> I don't know why somebody named William would want to be called Bill. But if I met somebody who went by those went by those nicknames or whatever, I would respect that because that's what they want. And so I don't get how people are like, well, you know, they're a good person, but they're just like confused. It's like, are they really though? Like, it's not that hard to understand. And if you don't understand it, like you said, Google is free.
Google is free. We've been dealing with this for years, decades, centuries. People have been identifying with they, them pronouns or non-binary or third gender or all of these different experiences. It's not something new. There is plenty of resources that you can go and get if you need help. And I think that also, Daquan, like another thing that I've seen also is that these people are so like unaware of their own self enough to realize just how to respect other people. So like I remember having these arguments with people when I was trying, when I had to go through those uh, meetings and stuff like that, where they were like, well, I just call you what I see you. I just, I call you as it is and X, Y, and Z. And it's like, okay, but if I called you Mr., and you identify with she, her, you would be mad as fuck. And you're like, yeah, yeah, because I'm not, I'm not a man. Okay, I'm not either. And they were like, well, you dress and da, 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 da. And it's kind of like, so when you're not dressed in a dress, we don't have a dress on, or you don't have, you know, uh, very feminine clothing on. It, if I called you a man, wouldn't you be offended by that? If I called you he, him, wouldn't you be mad about that? Well, yeah, X, Y, and Z. And it's like, yes, and it's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. And like I said, even with, you know, Daquan, like, even though I don't understand, even though I personally don't use they, them pronouns, I use she, her pronouns. And with that knowledge, I can say, oh, yeah, I can understand why Daquan's like, oh, yeah, they, them is my pronouns. And there's no need for them to go any further about that. There's no need to be, oh, we got to have a whole, well, Daquan, why did you, why is that your thing? Or what what, what made you think that this, this is what it is? It's kind of like, oh, okay, it's, it's they, them. Or now it's she, her, whatever it is. It's, it's not my business. It's not None my business. <laughs> like my my gender, my sexuality, it centers me. It's all about me. me I'm the, the main character. Person. I am the main character. So I don't need to water down my experience and my identity to center your you and your knowledge. That part. It comes as no surprise that understanding intersectionality is necessary everywhere, even in being non-binary. As gay Black people, we are aware of how outside perceptions try to keep us from living our most authentic life. So, Andre, what are some gender-affirming things that you want to do but feel that you can't because of who the world expects you to be? Um, There are a few things in particular that I love to do but can't for a multitude of reasons. Um, For one... I'd love to get laser hair removal to get rid of this fucking beard I have, but <laughs> that requires hella coin. Um, not to mention the fact that those machines have a more difficult time differentiating hair from skin with black people. I'd also like to wear long flowy weaves on a consistent basis. I've always seen myself as having that type of hair because, you know, it just feels right. But you know, in the community that I live in, having that type of hair could put me on the radar of some dangerous people who don't take kindly to people who they see as men displaying any femininity. Um, there was one time where I wore a blonde quick weave that made me feel like the baddest bitch on the game. Um, this was back when we were wearing masks. Um, at work, and it was easier, you know, not to get clocked by people if they didn't look close enough. But for those who did, I was called a faggot and made fun of by certain coworkers more often than I had in a long time. And, you know, as confident as wearing that hair made me feel and as affirming as it was to finally see 
what I've always wanted to see looking back at me in the mirror, I took it out after about a week because I felt something I hadn't felt since before I came out. And that was shame of who I am. Um, I didn't realize that even though I'm openly a part of the LGBTQIA community, I'm still selectively open. I still code switch when I'm around certain people in certain neighborhoods or environments. I'll keep a cold expression on my face, lower my voice, and even change my walk to avoid unnecessary confrontation. And when I had that weave in and my mask was down or off, it was impossible to hide my identity, which put a larger target on my back than I already had. Without the weave, I can still benefit from the privilege of being perceived as straight and cis when I choose to. The same goes for other gender affirming things I wanna do, like you know, being able to wear more feminine clothing from time to time and get my nails done. Um, those things make me more visibly queer, which in turn could make being in certain environments that I can't avoid going in more dangerous for me. Um, I had a friend who kept trying to say, you know, well, just be you. You're at risk anytime you're alive. Just be yourself. And, you know, I know she was coming from a good place and I know that she was trying to be encouraging. But as a cis straight woman, she didn't understand the nuances of the LGBTQIA experience. I'd want nothing more than to be exactly who I am at all times. But we don't live in a world or a society that makes it safe for everyone to do such a thing. To put it simply, I'm scared. You know, being non-binary is still fairly, you know, a fairly new discovery for me. And just like when I discovered I wasn't straight, it takes time to be in a position where you feel comfortable enough to be who you are. You know, I hope I'm able to be there one day, but currently I'm not in the, I'm not in the place to do that. But Daquan, I want to pass it back to you. What do you think? I completely agree. I think that, you know, one of the biggest things that I've learned so far is that there is a, there's a level of safety in privilege. Yeah. I can walk out the door without any makeup or anything like that and be perceived as a cis man and nobody would think anything of it. And there's a safety that comes with that. Yes. And even if you are in a very accepting area or a very accepting city or state, it only takes one person to ruin your safety for you. Yeah. And so there are plenty of times when, you know, there have been times when I've gone out in makeup because, you know, I thought about it enough. I've thought about, you know, where I'm going, how I'm getting there, you know, taking Ubers instead of the subway, doing things that makes me feel a lot more safer to exist in a visibly queer body yeah. but that you can't do that all the time so you have to weigh those risks with that possibility it could be that even if it's a one in a million chance there's still a chance and the chance is it just like oh somebody you know calls you a name the chance is you could die Somebody yeah. could decide to gay bash you or trans bash you and basically be like, I don't like you, so I'm going to attack you. And that's not a risk that I want to take ever. Sure, yeah. it's a risk of just being alive. And, you know, I'm sure your coworker had the greatest of intentions, yeah. but 
you really have to weigh the options and weigh the space that you're into. So I love exactly. to look like this, you know, have a 24 inch bust down, like <laughs> just like live the yeah. entire fantasy. But sometimes I have to decide when is it, do I want to keep my safety net of being cis passing versus, you know, having that affirming feeling, how, which one is more important at the moment for me? Yeah. And I think that even looking at being black, like, you know, Daquan, I want to ask you, like, how does race play into how you interact with like non-black, non-binary individuals? Child, it's a whole, <laughs> I think race and gender and sexuality create this interesting intersection because you know, going to a predominantly white institution that did have queer spaces and people who identified as non-binary, there still felt a disconnect, even yeah. if we both identified the same way in terms of our gender, there was still something about my experience that just was not getting reflected by you. And it sometimes just created this, uh, this distance, this kind of disparity where I didn't feel like I could fully be myself because my experience was not understood. And I think that even going back to the last question, there is this privilege in being a white non-binary person and wearing yeah. certain things versus being a black non-binary person and wearing certain things. Um, because a lot of times, in a lot of these white spaces, it's accepted a little bit more. Yeah. And if you're all, if you're in a predominantly black space, we know how, you know, there is homophobia and transphobia in the community, in the black community, just like every community, by the way. Exactly. But there's also the undertones of like the black church being at the center of the black community and all of these other things and the way that the patriarchy and white supremacy forces or push, pushes down Black people to the point of being homophobic and transphobic that yeah. creates an entirely different environment. So I, the white NYC non-binary experience is different from the Black NYC non-binary experience. And even my experience is different from a lot of other Black people. So it's yeah. one of these things where if I can have my experience as a Black non-binary person be so different from other Black non-binary persons, even if we're in the same area, imagine how different it would be for a white non-binary person who lives in like this upper class white neighborhood and all of this other stuff. Yeah, I think, you know, white non-binary people still have more privilege than Black and POC non-binary people. Um, I've had to limit my interactions with certain non-binary white people, because just like cis white people, their whiteness clouds their judgment of the world around them. And what I mean by that is, for me, and like Daquan said too, there are certain people who I don't have the non-binary conversation with because one, I don't see them on a regular basis, and two, it's not worth the emotional labor to have to go through the whole coming out routine again. Some white non-binary individuals don't understand the intersection of my identity as a Black person. For example, I had a situation where a non-binary individual um, 
outed themselves and me as a non-binary person to a Black coworker. Um, and as a white person, um, their race protected them from that Black coworker's disrespect or intrusive questioning in a more significant way than myself. You know, if they disrespect the white person, management is more likely to take action than if they disrespected me, which made me an easier target. Now, this is not to say that white non-binary people are, you know, exempt from prejudice or hate because of their identity. It is simply saying that their race has nothing to do with the level of prejudice they experience because of it. And as a Black person, my race contributes heavily to the amount of prejudice I receive among other Black people in ways that white non-binary people just won't understand. You know, in that same situation as well, recently even, that same white non-binary person, we were at a work assembly. And one of the speakers who just came there just for the day um, had addressed me as sir when they raised my hand to speak. And I didn't think nothing of it because again, bitch, I'm not gonna see you ever again. I don't really have the fucking time to go through this whole thing. We're just gonna be here for another two hours. But that white non-binary person took it upon themselves to go talk to that speaker during our lunch break and tell them my pronouns. And so during my lunch break, I had this person come up to me and say, oh, I'm so sorry, I disrespected you. I just didn't mean to da 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 the whole thing. And I was caught off guard because I was like, girl, the fuck? I didn't even tell you this shit. And so I had to let that non-binary person know like, hey, um, that is not your place. For one, you don't get to decide who I come out to. Um, and two, you could have put my life at risk because I don't know who this woman is and I don't know who she knows. And I'm black and you're white. So there is a difference there in how this person will react to me versus how they'll react to you. And the problem is not enough white people in the LGBTQIA plus community want to acknowledge the privilege that their whiteness affords them. And that's why we keep running into problems like this. You know, just, but Daquan, I want to pass it back to you. What do you think? I completely agree. Like, we have to realize that there is privilege with whiteness, period. Yes. Regardless of how many other intersection identities you have, there is privilege with whiteness. And I think that, like you said, a lot of whites, LGBTQ plus people use being queer as a way to absolve them from their whiteness. And that's mm -hmm. not something you can do. And it also creates an even larger disparity from white uh, queer people versus black queer people because they think that they can absolve their race using their sexuality or gender. But we know that we can't. It's exactly. all interacting and happening at the same time, intersectionality. Mm -hmm. So that creates an even higher level of disparity because I see a white non-binary person just like acting like they're just non-binary. They're not white, they're non-binary. And it's like, no, you, that, that's not how things <laughs> work. So it's one of these things where, like you said, you have certain risk as a Black non-binary person, especially a Black non-binary person who uses she, her pronouns, mm. that your coworker will never be able to understand. So yeah. it 
you just have to be able to recognize and acknowledge that your identity is different from others. And you can't use your experience as a white non-binary person to think about every single um, other experience to be the exact same. And like you said, this is why we're having constant discourse on top of discourse. And there's some new social media argument popping up every couple months, weeks, <laughs> days, even yeah. because of this difference. Yeah. And I wanted to say like, Daquan, you know, what are some of the new struggles, you know, that being black and non-binary have produced in your life? Ooh, girl. <laughs> <laughs> I think that one of the new struggles is just like, uh, contemplating how I was raised or how I was socialized in this world as a black man. Yeah. Because even though I identify as non-binary, that socialization doesn't necessarily leave me. Yeah. For example, I think one of the biggest things is a lot of times black men are seen as being aggressive, yeah. thugs, gangsters, yeah. like, and you have a certain way that you have to handle certain situations so you don't get seen as that, or, you know, you have certain ways that you have to deal with the police, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Just because I'm non-binary doesn't mean like, oh, well, like, I'm not a black man, I'm non-binary. Like, those things don't apply to me because I still get perceived in that way. And I was still socialized in that way. So yeah. even if I wasn't getting perceived in that way, my thought process still works like that. It doesn't automatically just turn off because I've I started to identify as non-binary. So I think that's one of the biggest ways that your socialization, you know, still impacts you. And even, you know, I've seen a lot of discourse online about how people even though they're non-binary, still identify as a Black woman because there yeah. are certain ways that they have been socialized and certain experiences and parts of their identity that still align with being a Black woman, even though they are non-binary. Yeah, I think that even when I was discussing, during this work assembly, we had a sociology uh, person come in talking about creating community and creating all this stuff. And they were like, you know, if you see a kid that's not supposed to be where they at, tell them where they are. And the first thing I came up to her after the fact was like, there was this video that was circulating around the internet a long while back. And it was kind of started this discourse where like, I think it was blackish, where there was a white little girl in the elevator crying. And, you know, the main character blackish, one of the, you know, the guy, I don't know what his name is, but he like backed away from the fucking elevator and let it close and left her crying. Everybody was like, why did you leave her crying? Why did you let X, Y, and Z? And he was like, because of the implication. Because as a black man, if I walked in there to try to console her, all people see is a black aggressive man and a white crying little girl. And so there's all these preconceived ideas of what could have transpired to why this little girl is crying. And so when I was talking to the sociology person, I was like, you know, as a black person, you know, I identify, you know, you know, regardless of my identity, you know, people perceive me as a black man. So like, how do I, you know, try to create this community and how do I try to do this when there's all these preconceived notions? She was like, bitch, I don't know. And that shit, <laughs> this doctorate degree level, like she was like, 
I mean, you know, if she better said it very professionally, she was like, um, I don't have any, you know, I don't know what to tell you, but basically she was like, bitch, I don't fucking know. I don't know what the fuck you do. It sucks and for you. It sucks for you is what she said. But like, it was just, it was frustrating to me because like I said, like it's, it really is like that. You know, one of the main struggles, you know, I've run into is this whole idea that me simply existing is somehow contributing to this supposed emasculation of the black man theory that many people in the black community believe is a thing. And it's really fucking irritating because the whole theory has roots in slavery, homophobia, and transphobia. But we've already broken that down before on the show, on the episode titled The Emasculation of the Black Man Myth. So go on and check that out if you want a more thorough breakdown of our thoughts. But the point is, you know, my existence as a non-binary person who enjoys wearing and doing things that society considers to be solely for cis women is seen as an attack against the Black community. I mean, many trans people as well as Black gay men can attest to this as well. The Black community as a whole doesn't rally for me, but vehemently against me. And in the Black community, many of the ways that we connect with each other through churches, barbershops, and beauty shops, in those spaces, people like me have been shunned once we were discovered as LGBTQIA+, ridiculed, brutalized, and even killed by homophobic Black men in the community specifically. Um, I don't... I don't have the same freedom to connect to those in my community in the same way as a straight black man or a straight black woman can. And don't even get me started on dating as a black non-binary person. I mean, it was already fucking difficult enough being black in the community um, or the gay community with, you know, being seen as undesirable by other black men who exclusively date white men, being fetishized by white men, but never desired romantically by them, and being on the bottom of the gay dating pool for every other race. I mean, the amount of people that are interested in gay black men romantically already feels like a very shallow pond rather than a pool. Add being non-binary to the mix, and that cuts that pond down to a small stream. <laughs> If that, the big one, if we run into those kind of issues, <laughs> man, that that pond is more like a puddle. It like, is, <laughs> but I completely agree. It's something that's so bizarre to think about because it's like you should understand how it is to feel marginalized, and therefore you shouldn't further marginalize people. But we know that's not the case, and yeah. like you said, <laughs> dating is its own completely different thing because. Even as somebody, like, it would be one thing if I just identified as non-binary. Because yeah. then it's like, okay, you're like diet man. You're like, yeah. oh my God, <laughs> man light. Stop. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> but also as somebody who, you know, identifies as non-binary and have pictures of me in full makeup, that also creates another level to it of being yeah. vis even more visibly queer that people are just like, you know, if it was just the non-binary thing, I could get with it. But the whole <laughs> thing and all of that, nah, it's not with me. And it's like, girl, come on. Like, get over it. <laughs> get I'm, over I'm it. through. Now, the table is always hot with current events and social issues. But sometimes the heat can get a little intense. Let's turn the temp down, take a breather, and get into this week's topic, Cool Down. So, Andre... 
How do you like to be romanced? And how do you go about romancing someone? Um, Many of the things that like make me feel like I'm being romanced or like courted um, are correlated to my love languages, which are physical touch, quality time, and words of affirmation. Um, often when people think of physical touch in like romantic love languages, they automatically think of sex and that's not the case. Like for me, sex is a very small part of that particular aspect of my romantic love language. I mean, it's the non-sexual touches that really make me feel like you're courting me, like a touch on the shoulder, a hand, leaning against me, hugging me, and general affection is awesome. Um, then there's the quality time. Now, this doesn't mean that we have to talk every fucking day, every, you know, hours upon hours on end, but, you know, more so that you are making sure that you are factoring me into your day. Like when we FaceTime or hang out with each other, you make sure that you're present with me. And if you're busy or something comes up where you can't spend time with me or you can't FaceTime or call me or talk to me, you just let me know. Um, and lastly, you know, words of affirmation are a huge deal for me. I'm not saying that you have to validate me because I have self-confidence, but compliments on my appearance, my career, and saying I love you go a long way with me. I mean, you can never say I love you and I'm attracted to you too much for me. Um, and every time you reaffirm it, it just makes me, you know, so much more secure in the relationship. And as far as how I romance someone, it's pretty similar. Like I'm very physically affectionate. Um, I make time for them so that they know that they are a priority. And I'm very honest about my attraction to them and how I feel about them. But what about you, Daquan? I'm really fucking interested to hear this, bitch. I need, I, I want to hear this tea. Uh, in terms of romance, <laughs> non-existent. <laughs> I don't like that shit. I, I'm, I'm um, I think I'm pretty similar in terms of I love quality time. Uh, I'm not really a touch person. I was about to say. <laughs> Listen, there's sometimes when people are like a little too touchy feely, and I'm like, mm, okay, girl, like calm down, calm <laughs> down. Um, but I think yeah, quality time is one of my biggest ways, and I have to emphasize quality time, not quantity of time. Say that shit, bitch. I don't need a text every single day. I don't need a text every single hour. I don't need to hang out with you every single day. But the fact that I make time for you or you make time for me, that is enough. Like, I don't care if yeah. we're just like on the phone, just like chilling. Like we're both yeah. just like, you know, cleaning up or doing dishes or like just the fact that we are together in a space either physically or on the phone or on facetime or something like that we don't even have to be having like a whole ass conversation and that's something that's like that's something that i like to receive as well as how i show love to other people because i remember having a conversation with my dad because he's like why every time you and your mom get on the phone y'all just be on the phone and not talking like isn't the point of a phone call to talk and it's like no like we're showing love by just being in the presence of each other even mm -hmm. if it's like you know through a phone it's still just like i i have this time reserved to my day for you like i'm not out here going to talking to other people or you know doing a whole bunch of other things like 
we're just here with each other. And I think that's so important for me, as well as in terms of words of affirmation, I love a good celebration. Like <laughs> I want to celebrate you as much as you celebrate me. Like it doesn't need to be like every single thing, but I love when it's like somebody just that just gets you and like your passions and your yeah. interest and everything like that. And just being like, I saw that video, like those numbers are numbering or you slayed that look or, you know, just like some type of thing that shows that you're not, you're just, you know me and yeah. you know what I like, you know, my interests, and you are engaging in those interests. I think showing interest in somebody else's interest is the most romantic thing that you could ever do. Like if I love going to theater and you're just like, all right, put some clothes on. We're about to go see this Broadway show. Like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> like that is the best. You about to get the Gog 3000. Yeah. With the Twister with <laughs> <laughs> Not the Twister Wizard. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. that is how I like to receive romance. And that is also how I like to give romance and love. Yeah. And I think that people oftentimes, like you said, I really want to go back to what you said about the quality time thing, is that so many people like misconstrue what quality time is because like everybody thinks it's just, oh, every single fucking day, I am the only thing you're talking about, only thing that you're like, you know, here with. And it's like, no, that's not what it is. Like, I'm okay that you have days where you're like, baby, I just need time. I just need a break. I just need to breathe right now. I just need kind of time to go, to, to go with me. To me, saying that, is quality time because it's letting me know that you're factoring me into the day. You're saying that I want to make sure that you know that there's nothing going on between us. There's nothing like bad going on. I just got shit going on right now. Or I'm just going through this thing or hell, I just need a break. I just need to breathe a little bit or just reconnect to me. And that's honestly all most people are asking for when it talks about quality time. And then when you do make time with that person and you do FaceTime or you do talk, you're present with them. You don't have everything else going on. You're actually spending that time to say, hey, let me check in on you. What's been going on with you? How are you doing? And like you said, with that words of affirmation thing, it's not always just, you know, oh, um, uh, gassing everybody up. It's about just really having that authentic, truthful comment. Because I can say, oh, yeah, I love that um, video you did way, way back when. It's kind of like, but what was the video about? Right. What did I do in the video? You know, or mm -hmm. shit like that. And like you said, I think that the biggest thing that people forget is that when it comes to that time, yes, when you are with somebody, they are going to have things that you're not interested in. There are going to be things they do that you're like, who bitch, that ain't shit. I ain't got the fuck. I don't know what the fuck this damn sports shit is. But like, I think it's really funny. I think, I don't know if we talked about this before, uh, but like there's this video of Beyonce um, in the stands at some sports show. And like, I, know, I think you know what I'm talking about. And like, you know, everybody's clapping. Like, oh, it's time for me to clap. And like, it was really funny because like, you know, I could, the first thing I thought of was like, honestly, like if my man was interested in sports, that would fully be me. Like, I don't know what the fuck is going on, but when fully. he's like. <laughs> so that, that is me. I am right? Beyonce in that moment. So like, but like you do it because you know that this person, this brings your person joy. It brings the person that you're with joy. And you're like, I want to be a part of that joy. That's all it really is. It's like, you don't have to understand shit. You ain't even got to watch. You could be like, I'm just, I'm here with you, baby. Yes. Oh, no, yes. They, they strike goal or whatever the fuck. <laughs> I don't know. Fucking baseball, basketball, football, tournaments, whatever my game. Right. <laughs> like, it doesn't have to be something that's this huge thing. Like, even if I'm just sitting up here watching you play video games, but you're still with me and we have this 
there's this on i don't know i always feel like this there's this connection you don't have to say anything you don't have to do anything but even if you're focused on playing the video game but you know you you know give me a look every now and then or there's something that just like we have that connection that we're present with each other that's all i need (laughs) Right, or like just the idea of seeing your partner happy. Like for me, bitch, if we sit in front of Charmed, are we watching Charmed? You could be like, oh, this fucking show. In your head, oh God, this fucking, yes, let's watch. Let's go into it. But like just the fact of taking joy in your partner's joy. Because you sit me in front of an episode of Charm, bitch, I am glued to the screen. I am wearing the biggest smile. I've watched every fucking episode of Charm multiple times over, but every time I watch, it's like the first time. And so I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, what's gonna happen next? Fully like, I know every line that they're about to say, but I'm still like, what's gonna happen? And like, you know, I just, I think that that is such a, that, that is such an example of love is like, it's compromise. It's saying, you know, even though this doesn't really make me, you know, I'm not really, it's not giving what it needs to give to me, but because it gives that to you, I want to, I want to be there with you. I want to get excited with you. And that is sometimes the most sexiest romantic thing that you can do is just to take joy in your partner's joy. Right. Like it doesn't necessarily have to make you happy or, you know, it doesn't have to make me happy. But mm-hmm. I'm just happy that you're happy. And that's exactly. It. So many children grow up never knowing the full scope of what their culture has contributed to society and history. So it's time for a change. Let's take a pause, rewind, and remind the world just how we did that. In an article written on LafayetteQ1067.com, we learned that Stevie Wonder was a child prodigy. Born prematurely and blind since just after birth, he began playing piano, harmonica, and drums at a young age and signed to Motown when he was just 11 years old. Though he experienced some teenage success, including the release of Sign, Seal, Deliver, I'm Yours, My Cherie Amour, and Uptight, Everything's Gonna Be All Right. It wasn't until the 1970s when Stevie Wonder found his groove. Superstition and You Are the Sunshine of My Life both achieved commercial success and brought Wonder three Grammy Awards. Two more Grammys followed in 1974 and 1975. The 1980s brought Stevie Wonder into the mainstream and Stevie used his profile to advance charitable and political causes, most notably the campaign to make Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday a national holiday. There were respective retrospective albums work with films and and television and charity performances and appearances. The decade also saw the release of what is considered to be Wonder's greatest hit, I Just Called to Say I Love You, which garnered the Academy Award for Best Original Song in 1985. The pace of the new material slowed for Wonder throughout the past three decades, though he continues to make appearances in limited tours. His last public appearance was a beautiful rendition of the Lord's Prayer at Aretha Franklin's funeral in August 2018, but he continues to have a lasting impact on music. He's amassed 30 top 10 hits 
including 10 number one hits, won 25 Grammys plus a Lifetime Achievement Award, and he's in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Black people are just so talented. <laughs> so good. Delicioso. Right. In an article from blackpast.org, we learned that Oscar show was the quintessential self-made man, novelist, filmmaker, and relentless self-promoter. Michaud began his career with door-to-door -door sales of his early writings to neighboring farmers. Encouraged by the modest success from his first novel, Michaud gave up farming to write six other novels about this period and region. He was contacted by the Black-owned Lincoln Film Company in Nebraska to adapt his third novel, The Homesteader, to film. Michaud rejected the offer and instead moved to Chicago, where he made his own film version of his novel. The Homesteader was the first full-length feature film written, produced, and directed by an African-American. Mm. It was also a commercial success. Significantly, his films in the 1920s and 1930s contrasted sharply with the Hollywood image of Blacks as lazy, ignorant, and sexually aggressive. Many white critics decried Michaud's amateur movie-making skills, yet his audiences devoured his product, making him the most successful Black writer, producer, and director in the United States until his death in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1951. In 1987, Oscar Micheaux was memorialized with a Hollywood Walk of Fame star, and two years later, he was given the posthumous award by the Black Filmmakers Hall of Fame and the Directors Guild of America. Bad bitch things. Period. <laughs> <laughs> like, not only did I write this, not only did I produce this, but I also directed it, and it's a first. Gotta love a black first. As always, eight, 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 clearing the fucking plate for these bitches. Honey, we stay clearing these bitches. Stay. <laughs> now, as always, thank you all so much for watching and keep the conversation going down in the comment box below. Don't forget to give this video a thumbs up. And if you are listening to us on our podcast, please rate and review on whatever platform you're using. You can also follow our podcast on Instagram and TikTok at The Melanin Margin for updates of new content. And if you'd like to follow each of us, our handles are at Daquan M-U-E. And at Andre Talks A Lot. Now we will see you all next time on The Melanin Margin, where our goal is always to bring the marginalized to the spotlight in any way we can. Goodbye now.